Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today, Albert Goldbarth, is the author of 25 books of poetry and essay, a novel, and the winner of two National Book Critics Circle Awards for his poetry, as well as the Penn West Award for a book of essays, and he's the Distinguished Professor of Humanities at Wichita State University. It is a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. A pleasure to be here and to be a living writer. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. The, the other option was not appealing. <laughs> no, nor was it when I was thinking about interviewing you. I'm like, what are we going to do? <laughs> I'm going to have powers, but not that many. Yeah, yeah. the Dead Writers interview show is really a snooze. An absolute and utter dead air situation. Dun-dun-dun. All right, well, let's start the way we usually do. I'm wondering if you will read a poem for us from Saving Lives, which is the second of your books to win a National Book Critic Circle Award. Yes. Into the Lives of Other People. Half waif, half woman. At 14, Norma could target her panhandle pitch exactly. Matron, wussy, preppy, leering, creep, and live a streethead's version of viable splendor. Sunboy taught me meditation that was yoga laced with acid. He could even dish or fuck me in a trance he called God City, and everything seemed so holy then in its grubby way. I'd spend a whole day lifting purses in the quarter or hustling dollar tricks in porta-potties in back of the go-go bars, and feel saintly. Would you ever... Then she waves a hand at her good, good life and its very civil accessories, lovely child, proper mortgage, seemly lawn gazebo. Guess it? So it turns out that her feral, savvy was excellent training for managing an advertising agency that handles Save Our Kids as a gratis account. It turns out Chad, the Little League coach lawyer daddy in this picture, used to shoot pool over at Tumbletown and gigolo condo widows for a living. Not that this became the first line of my resume, you understand. It turns out Yes, I understand. We all were at least a dozen successive in utero selves. It doesn't end. The me convention always overbooked. Hello, my name is me. Hello, my name is me. Hello, my name. One night... I said the kinds of things that score the bedroom air with something unerasable, and the marriage is never the same again. Is this the man who said those things, the one in the mirror, here, the one with the pen? In the film The Elephant Man, the kindly doctor looks up from his self-absorptive reverie, he's swazzled with a little wine, and asks his wife sincerely, Am I a good man or a bad man?
and the elemental wrestle of light and shadow over his face invests his otherwise simple question with a fearful and recognizable profundity. The answer is, we're smugglers, every one of us. So long as the brain is a living thing, we're smugglers of uncountable alternate us across the border and into the lives of other people. I was reading about more literal contraband, illegal copies of Joyce's Ulysses and of Lady Chatterley's Lover in a dowager's voluminous skirts. Cocaine as an urn of the dearly departed's ashes. 1996, in Stockholm, a woman was arrested by customs officers for attempting to smuggle 75 live snakes in her bra. They had seen her scratching suspiciously. Then the phone rang. Chad, to tell us his case of the week. The man wasn't single. The woman wasn't AIDS-free. The ultra-courteous bellboy was a private eye, and the planter of wandering Jew was a Japanese microphone. Thank you very much. That's Albert Goldbarth reading from Saving Lives. The poem is called Into the Lives of Other People. And um, there's so much good stuff in there. Just, I mean, not... not Po- only poetically speaking, but actual things, actual actual things in the world. And when we before we started the show, I was when we were doing our sound check, we were talking about crayons. And you knew more about crayons than I've ever known that there was to know about crayons. And I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit about what you think is going on in contemporary poetry these days, and how you are seeing what you're doing in that body of work here in the states. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or we could talk about crayons. <laughs> I'm I'm much better at crayons. Um, you know, the honest answer is, and, and this is one of the reasons I think I'm rather inarticulate at moments like this. I, I'm I'm not much of a an archaeologist or psychologist or even sheer diarist of my own writing life. What I want to do is the poems themselves for all of my entire life I've tried to create a life for myself that has time leisure and enough energy so that I can be open to whatever the next poem of the moment is or revising the poem of the day before that needs revision but I I really step outside of the stream to look at my work and ask how it fits into a larger body of writing that would constitute my generation or the generation coming up. I, I, I normally don't think of my work in those terms. I'm sometimes paid to talk about other people's work in those terms, but I, I, I usually don't turn that kind of focus onto my own work. I, I think somehow it would probably be damaging for the, the flow of the work to have to fret over those kinds of things. Uh, well, and I, I wonder that I'm not surprised to hear you say that because uh, your work stands out very to me as very different from much of what is going on in contemporary poetry, um, and 
I believe it was Slate Magazine who there was a review um, a couple of years ago there that talked about most of contemporary poetry has to do with um, this language distilled and um, concision and little bits of things um, on the page. And you have this, the, the way they described it was this wacky, talky, fat poems that have all kinds of stuff in them. And uh, I, I wonder if if you continue to feel free to write the poems that you write because there's no sort of looking into the others and sort of jockeying in for position. <laughs> I think that may be true. I, I remember that review now, now that you bring it up. If only fat had been P-H-A-T. Oh, I so wish it was. I know, I know, a missed opportunity. P-H-A-T, but no. I was saying to somebody just the other day, it might have been while I've I've been here in Ann Arbor, that in a way, when when I first started, well, I've, I've always written, I remember trying to write a little short story when I was in kindergarten, but when it finally focused down to poetry and I started to think of myself seriously as an aspiring poet, we're talking like 1965 to 75, a very different world now. It was before the the AWP, the Associated Writing Programs, existed. It was before poets and writers took off. It was certainly way before the world of the the Internet. In some ways, it was a a much more limited but, but a kind of much more innocent world. At least it felt that way to me growing up in Chicago uh, without access to a big city literary scene, without an, any understanding of the world of literary power. And it, I, I don't know if it's true to say I started writing in a little bubble of isolation, but th- there was no sense that one had to continuously check one's work against the work of slightly more famous and with it and hip others. There was no sense that one ought to be writing in a certain style that was a style of the moment. It it, it seemed to me easier or maybe seemed more important to be able to find an individual voice that was just one size big and and fit a person's own needs. And so, well, I read poetry and I think I I know what's out there, and I certainly know the difference between a Mary Oliver poem and a Ray Armentrout poem, let's say. You know, I, I, I don't know that I feel the need to either judge them against one another or judge myself by triangulating myself with them. I simply try to be true to the poems that come to me, however they do come to me, and, and give voice to them as best I can. You're teaching now, uh, and... Do you find, did you study with particular people when you were deciding to take yourself seriously as a poet? And um, now that you're teaching folks who are starting to take themselves seriously as poets, do you see, um, it, I mean, that's certainly a characteristic that's also different from the 60s and early 70s, the, the proliferation of teaching of creative writing is formally and things like MFA programs here at the University of Michigan has really changed a lot of how we do apprentice writing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see your role in all of that? You've been here at the University of Michigan doing uh, doing some workshops this, this week. Yeah. Well, actually, one-on-ones, not what we might think of as true workshop discussion, but one-on-ones with some of the people in the program, who are all, by the way, very fine. I'm not just saying that to be a good guest. The four people I talked with yesterday were 
really very likable, bright, uh, genial, and, and there was some nice work I was looking at. Um, well, I mean, MFA programs have really impacted the world of what we call loosely creative writing a lot, obviously. There's been so much verbiage expended on, on that. I, I don't know that I need to add a lot more to it, but um, what was your question again? Well, I was just wondering if you would say something about it. Not, And, and I, I recognize that there's so much said, and I don't want to sort of just lop on to more of that. But since you um, have expressed coming through and into your own as a poet in a very different way than what's going on now. And because you're teaching, I wondered if you thought about those two things together, sort of how you came into your own as a poet versus how you are participating in other people's coming into their own as poets now. Mm -hmm. I I suppose I could just loosely say that in in my workshops, as I I generally try to construct them, I try, though I'm sure I, I fail in it from time to time, to... Um, not insist that people write in any one aesthetic or in any one particular voice and vision. I, I always say to my students, whether or not they think I follow through perfectly on it or not, that I, I'm, I'm there to see that they're writing the best version of their own voice and vision. And if they seem not to have one yet, if they're still a little more raw at it, I, I try not to lead them toward any one particular aesthetic or one author in particular, but just to make sure they're immersing themselves as deeply and widely as possible in the whole stream of what's available. I I do try to encourage them to read as much as possible during their workshop life, as well as write their own stuff. Um, Try to be a nice guy and fair, still honest. (laughs) How's that working out? Um, sometimes it works out well, sometimes it doesn't. Well, that's a good place for us to pause for a short break. Okay. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today, Albert Goldbarth, and I will be right back. tuned into WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Albert Goldbarth, and we're talking about poetry, his and the world of it, um, and uh, other grand things. So let's talk a little bit about where, before the, before the break, you were saying that you encourage students to 
sort of read widely and think about where their voices would come from and that your job as a teacher is to help bring that out in them, allow them to find that. And um, folks these days are pulling from all kinds of different disciplines to figure out where their world is and how they want to be thinking about poetry and writing it. And you've written about, and it's in your poems, um, about science and art and the way those things are sort of working with each other. And I'm wondering if you think it would be a good idea to read As the World Turns and then talk about this question or launch straight into it. Uh, let's, let's launch straight into it. Okay, let's go. Okay. Art and, and science. That's, how, that's not a question, that's a statement. Hard and science, question mark. <laughs> um, what's, what's happening? Why, um, for example, uh, Ben Lerner has a, uh, the, a hip book out that came out a couple of years ago called um, The Lichtenberg Figures, um, a poetic sequence. And so he's drawing from Georg Lichtenberg and that um, design that's made on lightning strike victims or when you inject a piece of acrylic with a big electric shock. And it, it, the ways in which the energy disperse creates a fractal. Um, Alice Fulton has talked about fractal poetics. Dylias Moss here at the University of Michigan now is doing this sort of fork poetics thing. Um, folks, in one way or another, a lot of people are gravitating either for subject matter or for poetic theory to the world of science. And that doesn't necessarily seem to me like it would be the most obvious place, but it seems to be a very fertile ground. Would you talk a little bit about... <laughs> you're just looking at me like you hate this question. <laughs> yeah, but at least it's a question. Now. It is a question. Um, would I talk about it? Yes. Okay, the answer would be yes. Thank you. You're welcome. Um it, it doesn't seem so unusual to me. I mean, I think by now people who write poetry tend to be readers with, with active, inquisitive minds. We, we should remember, too, for instance, that Alexander Pope knew the science of his day. He knew what Newton was doing, uh, and he, he makes reference to it. So does Blake. They're not always fans of what's happening in the science of their day, as Whitman isn't in his poem, The Learned Astronomer, where he he walks in high dudgeon out of an astronomy lecture because he thinks the astronomy is taking the magic and mysticism out of the night sky for him, but he knows the stuff. He attends the lecture. So to some extent, I don't think that interest is brand new, but there are certain voices available in poetry now that I think allows us to incorporate that kind of material in a more direct, maybe naked and obvious manner. But But I think people who write poetry have always been interested in knowing the world at large. I'm sure one who knew more about Shakespeare than I do could go through Shakespeare and point out all sorts of references, allusions, metaphors that are science-based. Science-based and a sort of material. Um, it seems like that's part of that's part of the world, and any curiosity about existence would go there. But perhaps, or not. Well, yeah. So, so for, for instance, I mean, poets of your generation, my generation, or whatever little years are, are in between in that generation, you know, probably slum around and read in Scientific American and discover the, your, your typical PBS show. I mean, they, they know things. Their, their anthers are out there and attuned to, to picking up pollen from the world. Or is it pistols that do that? Anyway. 
it's one or the other. One, one or the one or the other. Yeah. Um, and it, it's not surprising to me that uh, a, a poet with with an appetite for for life and, and what's happening out there would be able to write a poem if he or she wanted to that incorporated without even intending to particularly just as a natural matter of course worlds of science worlds of pop culture politics as as well as personal diary like material just all out there and available for use uh, since you raised teaching before as as uh, a touchstone for us uh i am teaching a course uh, i invented for for the department called isms and ologies i taught it once about two years ago i, I thought it was v- very successful i enjoyed it in any case the idea is that um every grad student enrolled in the course and it's traditionally been a mixture of mfa people and ma people has to find uh, a passion to research from outside the world of literature maybe even outside the world of the humanities altogether which would certainly include sciences as well as the visual arts and popular culture i, I tell them i don't care what it is from you know, high church music in the middle ages to the history of pornography what, whatever they'd like to seriously pursue and then bring it back to the class in the form of a presentation and a substantial paper that then overlaps with the world of literature so that somebody of poetry, drama, fiction addresses in some way this outside research from another field, another ism or ology. And it's it's been very, very nice. Last time I taught it, the first time I taught it, a woman did uh, a paper on modernism as it revealed itself in both architecture of the day and literature of the day. Somebody uh, wrote about uh, 20th century physics and the way it makes itself known in uh, Gravity's Rainbow. Uh, somebody did uh, a report on uh, radical political movements uh, during the time of Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. Uh, I, I like it very much. I mean, it gives them a chance to cross-pollinate between another field, which could very well be the sciences, and bring it back to literature and allow the two to feed on each other. And it seems to be going very well um, right now as well. And one woman, I, I thought this was a very uh, savvy idea of, of hers. She's uh, researching that moment, like right toward the end of and right after World War II, when the fast food industry is created and MFA programs are created and looking at the similarities and what it is in the culture at the moment that essentially franchises food and franchises creative writing. Oh, what an interesting project. Yeah, that might be nice. No, that one could be really great. Well, I'm wondering if, I mean, it's certainly a fertile ground, this sort of extra literary parts of the world, science and fast food, any of that gives us more stuff to think about in interesting ways. I'm wondering if um, you think that there might be any um, problem or issue with kind of getting it wrong. When when folks take things from so many places, they are not experts in all of those places that they take bits. Um, is there an issue with um, appropriation or misappropriation in, in poetry? Um, that you see? Um, uh, hi, hi, radio audience. Sure. Yeah, okay. No, yes. Um, 
I mean, like, there's a difference between these projects that your students are doing where they're actually investigating and sort of making an argument as opposed to um, I was teaching my students yesterday about making poems from found bits of language, and we composed poems from uh, text that we just took out of context completely and smooshed together in other ways and came up with a rhythm and a sound scheme that worked for this 16-line poem composed of 16 people making you know, a poem together out of stuff we stole. And um, there, there, there was something very interesting about that, but I also wonder if there's something about um, context that might also be compromised by something like that. And if you you're, see... You're the one doing it. <laughs> you're the one with the moral issue, lady, not me. <laughs> well, I don't want to throw any moral issues on you that you don't see. But but to what extent can we kind of take things as poets and just um, put them together and create the world that we want to see? And what what happens there? Well, I don't know if this is a fair analogy or not, and I'm hardly knowledgeable in the other field I'm going to mention now, but doesn't it seem to you that to some extent... Um, cutting-edge theoretical physicists are really doing the same thing at the moment. They're they're inventing possibilities. They're sitting around and getting paid very well, it seems to me. We should all be physicists. (laughs) To be sitting around and and inventing the possibility that there really might be multiverses out there, I mean, coexistent universes even beyond the delimited bounds of the universe we have. No. I mean, to to an extent, that's a creative writing project. They may have to flesh it out with formulae. It would be nice if they found some physical proof of of such possibilities. But ultimately, they're spinning out creative possibilities. Now, that's not true for all of the sciences, of course. But it it does seem to me that there's an edge in science now that, that is a lot more... Um, literary in an extent than it is scientific in the old understood sense of what science is. And I suppose, I, I guess I'm implying that to some extent then a true creative writer in the sense we are can't misappropriate that material because it is equivalent invention to begin with. I don't know if that's fair or not, or what a physicist would say. Would say about that. Yeah. But it's an interesting parallel, and I think it's um, it, it leads me to question why we didn't become physicists. So let's go back to when you decided to take yourself seriously as a poet. And um, you said you wrote your first story in kindergarten. When did you sort of decide, no, I'm not going to just um, do this on the side. I'm going to be this and do this as my life, my career choice. Okay. I don't think of it as a career. I mean, Ah, that's not the term I I would use, calling. I like calling Calling, it better. Um, And and I don't know that I ever made that decision. It it, it was always what I was attracted to. Well, everybody else in my high school went to med school. I just stuck with poetry. But it was never a conscious decision, as if there were other viable options. There simply weren't. It's what I've always done, and I've never stopped doing it. And we're still going on then. Um, Limping along. Limping along. No, I mean that we're still going on to our break. It's the top of the hour. Oh, good. 
Yes. So we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Albert Goldbarth. We'll be right back. show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Albert Goldbarth. And um, we're going to spend the the rest of the show talking a little bit about um, sort of the trials and travails of being a poet. Um, during the break, you were telling me that you, the, the, you gave a reading recently that I was very sad to miss. And um, you were telling me that that's really what you want to do. You want to write and read. And this sort of talking about the writing and the reading is, is not where it's at for you. Yeah, yeah. Is, that a, is that a fair... I think the term visual comes to mind. Ah, okay, yeah. there we go, yes. So, um, but folks want to know, like, what's behind the writing? What's going on? You've got to make a living. I mean, since we aren't physicists, um, somehow we've got to pay the rent. Um, and poetry doesn't pay the rent so much. No, n- not time being paid for this right now. No. No, but if you want to offer. <laughs> I would love to pay you for this. <laughs> well, you know, I, I sometimes wind up saying this to my students. I, I, I don't know what generalizations can or ought properly to derive from it, but but it's true nonetheless. Dante, let's say. Dickinson, let's say. Whitman, let's say. Rilke, let's say. They never went on a poetry circuit reading tour. They didn't give craft lectures. They weren't interviewed in a magazine or on a radio station. And they're still the greatest poets we can read. Their work is great specifically because it leaps over that barrier. And without that in-person touch, and without the diary-like confession over a radio show, and sometimes across even barriers of language, and certain, certainly barriers of culture, ocean, gender, that work is still powerful enough, genius enough, to grab us by the coat collars and say, fix your attention on me. I am essential 
to your life. It's something to think about. Those poets and their work don't require a reading in Angel Hall. Right. Do you think it's, back to your student who's doing fast food and, and fast food poetry, um, do you think that that this is this sort of poetry circuit um, and public reading phenomenon that we practice so much now as part of the game, or the, the and by game I don't mean that we're playing at it, but rather that it's what we have to play um, to be poets in this country now. Do you think that says more about the time or more about the quality of the poetry that's happening in the world or or is it uh, are things a change in well I, I think it says something about both I mean I, I do think it would be naive to suspect that the medium doesn't change the message and that the prevalence of poetry readings now somehow don't affect the kinds of poems that do get written that would have to be the case I mean we, we know that the medium does affect the message. And, and there are lots of people now who write work, at least in part, with an eye toward its public presentation, for better or worse. That simply is true. And do we have to play the game? I, I think certainly there's any number of poets out there, fiction writers too. Uh, what percentage of the existing population of writers? I couldn't guess, but a lot, who don't even question the fact that readings and craft lectures and conferences and colloquia exist. It simply is part of the stream in which they live. I, I think it would be a, a little healthier to sometimes step out of the stream, look at it, and, and question exactly what it's doing and where it's taking its detritus. Do you step in and out, or have you sort of been in the stream for a while? You're on faculty at, at Wichita state so I, ca- I count that as part of the stream yeah well I'm, I'm not independently wealthy so there I am not that I don't enjoy working with some of my students of course um, but, but yeah I mean I, I, I enter that stream as we're metaphorically calling it I, I think with, with a little bit of questioning and, and uh, jaundiced opinion you but you were so charming when you called up. How could I say How no? How could you say no? <laughs> well, I'm glad you didn't because it, it's really wonderful to have you on the show. So do you feel more comfortable about being kind of out in the world as a prose writer versus a poet? Is Does one feel more private than the other? Well, it's not as if I've, I'm writing prose. It's become bestseller prose. I, th- I think the kind of prose I'm writing still uh, has an appeal to the sorts of people and the limited numbers of people who would be reading my poetry. So I don't know that that's, th- th- that's a, a distinction-making issue for me. Mm. What, what, what is true, if we go back to something we were saying a little before the last music break, is, is that I think probably some of my prose, simply because of what prose is and the kind of accommodation a paragraph can offer sometimes is able to make even a, a little bit more room for research material uh, the, the taint of material from other areas of interest than poetry can accommodate mm-hmm. when I, as I mentioned earlier in the show before the show we were doing the sound check and talking about crayons and you you began to tell me about the 
aroma that comes from crayons and where all that. How do you know that? Will you tell the listeners about crayons and and tell and how do you know that? And is that part of a research project that you did for a particular bit of work, or is that just something you now know that might make its way into some of your work? At last, a subject I can warm to. Thank <laughs> you, Ashley. Please warm to the crayons. Um, I, I don't know how I know it. It's just one of the little, surely many people know that. Surely m- many of our listeners have the experience of opening up a package of specifically Binney and Smith brand Crayola crayons and being overwhelmed by the beautiful bouquet. It, it's at least as good as a bottle of fine wine or, or Chanel number no. 5. That that fragrance of, of those crayons is powerful and I, for a lot of grown-ups, I know it immediately takes them back to a pleasant childhood moment. And as I was saying when we talked a little bit earlier, I, I believe I read somewhere that that company in particular, Binney and Smith, which makes the official brand Crayola crayons, although I'm not getting paid to say this, uh, intentionally adds fragrance to the batch when the crayons are being made. Um, my, my wife, on a couple of occasions, has bought me crayons as, as a little gift specifically for the aroma. Once or twice, they've given me crayons to take with on little trips like this in a little plastic baggie to keep the aroma fresh so that I could open it up if I wanted to and just sniff and have a little moment of quiet and nostalgic peace. Wow. So much of childhood is tumultuous for so many people. It's interesting to me that that would be the time where you would find the pieces in the, in that, that crayon moment. Well, I probably had a relatively clement childhood. I mean, my parents were not wealthy people, but they were caring people. I, I don't have interesting dramatic stories of childhood abuse to share. But I, I would think for a lot of people I know, no matter the quality of their childhoods, the smell of those crayons would be pleasant and would lift them to that pleasant place. Yeah. Well, and smell is such a powerful sense for trans taking us to some other place. Um, yeah, I, I think the question would be, and I don't know what the answer to this is, if you've had no experience with those crayons in childhood and just opened a package as an adult, what would the smell mean to you? Or And would it mean anything at all? Yeah. I mean, it would certainly be noticeable. You can't mistake that smell. but Right, but, but, but are we hardwired to accept that as pleasant, sweet, innocent, simply because of the kind of smell it is, or does it require the nostalgic associations? And therein lies the connection between poetry and science. Yes. <laughs> we did it. We, we did it. If we could only get paid a physicist's salary for coming oh, up please, with it. please, please, yes. <laughs> this may be the grand unified theory of crayons. I'm writing this down. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to run with it. When you set out to write, um, do you and I, I teach my students, for example, to go find all their five senses plus whatever senses they can make up and engage them all to write. Um, do you consciously do things like that when you're writing as consciously as you would carry a plastic bag full of crayons with you on trips as a sort of touchstone for quiet space? Well, maybe I, I could best, at least by my own lights, use the question as as a cheap excuse to say that, well, I don't 
mind you're asking the question. It's a reasonable one. I, I really don't like to talk about my private writing life for, for a few reasons. One, I, I think the work should be self-sufficient. Again, Dante's is. I don't need to know if he wrote in the morning or the evening or if he wrote the Divine Comedy in longhand or used a computer. The, the work speaks for itself. I, I wish there were a little more of that in the air these days instead of less of it. Uh, and I, I, for me, it, it's a kind of private moment. People ask me that question, and I, I'm, always, I'm always asking myself, well, what if I went up to you and said, what a beautiful little two-year-old child. What position did you and your <laughs> husband use when you... Uh, you know, Made that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, um, it's none of your business. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess, I guess then what I'm trying to get at is not so much your private writing space as, as sort of process um, and that teaching thing. Because a lot of um, beginning writers in particular, and folks who haven't sort of found their stride, are really curious, like, how do I do it, you know? And a lot of students who are taking introductory classes here um, that I'm teaching are, in most of their other classes, they're told, I would like you to do this, and this is the right answer, and give it back to me. And then they walk into a creative writing class, and I say, I would like you to do something, and give it back to me. And they ju- it's unnerving. They want, they want some place in some way and you know someone who's done it before to show them the light um so i'm guessing you have students do the same thing to you you know tell me how it's done and what's the best advice you give them the best advice i give them is that i won't tell them how it's done they should read they should love reading and if they're meant to be writers it will happen to them I, i hate to keep beating the same dead horse over and over again but I must. It's not as if Keats or Dickinson took creative writing courses and received assignments and exercises from somebody. They were meant to be writers. In fact, they were real writers. They read and they intuitively imbibed the, quote, lessons, unquote, that they needed to from the masters they read. And love itself was the medium through which they grew into their own writing lives. If it's not going to happen that way, a list of exercises and lessons isn't going to do the trick. So for me, just encouraging them to read with love and understanding love is the best I can do for them. Not that I don't rely on exercises as a semester goes along. There has to be some sort of superstructure, but it's not the best of what I can do for them. And if they can't love reading on their own, not for three hours of credit, not for a grade, but just it's, it, because it's becoming the medium of their lives, then it's all lost and no lesson or exercise will suffice. Wonderful answer. And time to wrap up. I, I know, even I'm in such a good time. I hate to send you off. Um, thank you so much, Albert Goldbarth, for joining me today on The Living Writer Show. A pleasure. You have been tuned into WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. This is The Living Writers Show, and please stay tuned to WCBN.
The Daily Sports Report. Michigan with the ball at the Michigan State 21-yard line. Three wide receivers, two far, one near. Henny under center. He'll drop back to pass. Looks for Edwards in the end zone. Jump ball. And it is caught by Braylon Edwards. Braylon Edwards in the back of the end zone. Gets the touchdown for the Wolverines. And the comeback is almost complete. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Daily Sports Report here on WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. Steve Schuster here with you from the basement of the Student Activities Building, and we'll take a look at what's going on in both Michigan and national sports. We'll kick things off with a hockey game that took place last night at Yost Ice Arena. We had the call there at Yost, Michigan defeating in-state 